All right. Um, does anyone need a Bible? Raise your hand if you need a Bible. We do this every week. We just hand out Bibles. So raise your hands high if you need a Bible. No one needs a Bible? All right. We do this every week. It's so one, you know the words that I'm reading out of my Bible is in, the, in your Bible. It's the actual Bible, not just some of my own words that I've made up. But we also do this because we know that some people don't own a Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, just keep this Bible. It's yours. But if you do own a Bible, you can just set it somewhere up here on your way out or back at the Connect desk on your way out. So today we are actually, we have what we call a standalone message week. So we've been going through the book of Acts, if you've been with us since January. We've been going through the book of Acts. But this week we're actually doing a message that's just kind of set apart that isn't part of the series of Acts. And we set up two different times throughout the series of Acts to have these moments where we could do something different. So today we're going to do something, and I think in a few months we're going to have like a panel of the elders and kind of give you an update of, on the church. But today, um, being it that it's Memorial Day weekend and all the stuff, we find that the standalone message is like a good message for us to have. And there's actually something that's been stirring on my heart for a few months now, Stir- and something that I wanted to share, but it, it's something that isn't in the book of Acts. And so when, this, when I saw that this had come up in our preaching calendar, uh, it worked out and it was convenient that I could talk about this today. And so before I get into that, though, uh, a quick story about my little daughter, Amelie. How many, I actually just wondered this, how many people have met my daughter, Amelie, in here? Ooh, yeah, she, she's, uh, she's spunky. All right, so, you know, she, she's, uh, she's a great kid. I love her. She's a little bit too much like me, I think, is the problem, um, in that she's very moody. And, uh, but she's very intuitive, too. She's very intuitive. Like, she just picks up on things. When I'm, like, frustrated with her and I'm grumpy at her or whatever, I, I could even just be a, just kind of like a plain face. She'll be like, Dad, are you mad at me? I'm like, I am mad at you. Uh, she's like, don't be mad. I'm like, well, stop punching me. Um, but she does this other thing is sometimes, I don't know if this happens with you and your wife, but sometimes me and my wife, we get in arguments. And um, that was a joke. Uh, <laughs> I know it happens with you and your wife. Uh, but sometimes we get in arguments, and uh, usually what happens is the argument will start off, and I'll be talking like this, and then I'll go to a little bit angrier tone, just just barely. Uh, maybe my wife would be like, it's not barely. Um, but just, in my opinion, just barely a different tone that's full of anger. And my daughter, when she hears me doing this, she'll come up and say, Dad, stop. Dad, no talking right now. I'll be like, hush, child, right? And I'll be, be quiet. And then like, even though last week, she, she overheard us. She was in bed, but she kind of overheard us because we were in the hallway or something. And she was like, you guys are talking rude to each other. And she, always, she says this to me pretty much every time. There's like no way I can just like ever like use any kind of tone in my house because of my daughter. And every time she says it, though, like it, it challenges me. Like, it really, it truly challenges my heart because often the moment I'll be using this tone, and God forgive me for using this tone, but I'll, I'll begin to use this tone, and I won't even know that I'm using this tone yet, but my daughter has picked up on it, and she even, she did this from, like, when she was two years old. So as a two-year-old, she's putting her hand in my face saying, stop talking, and, you know, instead of being mad at her, I honestly would be like, man, she's right. I should stop talking right now. I'm challenged by that. And I think that there's like these texts in the Bible that, that also challenge me in that similar way every time I read them. Right? There's this text in Matthew where, 
where Jesus is talking about like the last day or the day of judgment, and there's going to be people that come to him, and there's going to be people that say, hey, Jesus, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We did all these great works in your name. And Jesus says, and on that day, I'm going to say to them, I never knew you. That's challenging because I go, I'm not sure I've done any of that stuff yet, right? I have yet to cast out a demon. I've tried. I don't think it's worked. I think the demon just goes, no, nah, I'm staying. And like, I don't think it's happened, right? There's another text too in Revelation that, that uh, says, hey, you're neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm. You're room temperature water. So I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Every time I read that, I go, man, I don't want to get spit out of God's mouth. That sounds terrifying. That sounds bad. And it, it causes me, it challenges my heart to go, is my heart in a state of lukewarmness right now? Or the passage before that, it causes me to go, God, do I really know you? Every time. And I know God, and I, hopefully I'm not lukewarm, but it, every time I read those passages, it challenges me. Now, today we're going to be going through this passage that I don't think normally challenges us. I think we read through this passage and we just go, huh, that's a nice story. That's, a, that, that's cool. That's cute. But I think that the way that it is set up, the, the way that it is, the way that Jesus tells it is to challenge us. And so the, the story we're going to talk about today, the passage we're going to be in, is the passage where Jesus uh, tells the story of the Good Samaritan. We read it during the scripture reading. And it could be really easy for us to just gloss over this story, or we could let our hearts be challenged by it. We could let our hearts, just like Amelie could walk up to my face and go, Dad, stop talking, and that challenges me. We could let God, in a sense, do the same thing to us. Or we could just go, ah, I've heard this a million times. Actually, I visited a church just last week, and they just preached this great. And, oh, man, this isn't Vince. It's the backup guy. We could say all these things. <laughs> what? Uh, <laughs> did that come out? Uh, sorry. Um, we could say all these things, but I think that this text should challenge. The laughter was a little too hard. Like, <laughs> like that's what we were thinking. <laughs> I just realized that. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Feelings hurt. Um, we could say all these things, but I think that we should actually take this moment right now, even as I'm talking, begin to say to God, God, can you challenge me with this text today? God, I think that this is a challenging text. I'll take Anthony's word for it for right now. Will you challenge my heart with this text today, even though we've heard it a million times? And so it, the message is going to be about loving your neighbor as yourself. Like, that's going to be about the message but can we hear that in a way that maybe is not fresh, but is inspiring us to love our neighbor again? Okay, so let's go to Luke chapter 10, if you have your Bibles. Luke chapter 10, we're going to be in verse 25. If, you're, if you never grew up in the church, the way to remember the first four Gospels, because this is in the third Gospel, is this thing my dad taught me. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John went to bed with their stockings on. There you go, you got to memorize now. It's Really dumb, but that's how I memorized the order of those. <laughs> My dad's kind of crazy. Um, verse 25, let's just get into this story. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put into the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Let's stop there. So there's this guy who's a lawyer, and it's not a lawyer like you and me, like learner in a row, that's the way to go type lawyer, right? It's not a guy that represents you in court. They're, it's a guy that actually just knows the law of the Old Testament. And that's what they called these 613 rules in the Old Testament. They called it the law. 
So this guy was a lawyer in that sense. He knew the law perfectly. He was known as like a professional of the law. He could tell people about the law and what it meant and all these things. And so Jesus is walking around and he is this rabbi and it was common for different religious people to go up to different rabbis and just kind of challenge them and say, hey, how do you interpret the Torah? How do you interpret the law? How do you do this? And so that was not very uncommon. And so this guy wanted to challenge Jesus, see what he's all about. He had probably heard a lot of things about Jesus, maybe even seen Jesus do some things. And so he says, Jesus, what do you say? How do you inherit eternal life? And then we see that Jesus is going to classically Jesus this guy right now. So verse 26, he said to him, now this is Jesus speaking back, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Right? Classic Jesus move. Ask back a question. And the man answered, and he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Right? So, so Jesus, he, he loves to do this. And this was actually kind of a rabbinical move at the time, to ask questions back to students in order to get them thinking. But this guy was more than a student. And so Jesus is challenging kind of the back of this guy and goes, okay, what do you say the law says? You know, I think sometimes Jesus was like, I just don't want to get in this conversation right now. I know what you're about. I'm not about this. You answer it, right? And maybe, I don't know what Jesus was going on with Jesus right then, but I think there's some, Jesus knew what was going on and he's trying to set this guy up. And the guy responds, he goes, well, I, I think it says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then also to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus could have said, now I'm going to expound on that. But Jesus goes, yep. And I just imagine that Jesus was like, see ya. <laughs> right? And, and then, but the story goes on because the lawyer wanted more than that kind of an answer. Because Jesus was like, yeah, that's it. Love God and love people. That's the, that's the greatest commandments of the law. Well, let's see. This man wanted more. Verse 29. But he, this is the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, this is interesting. This guy, it says that he wanted to justify himself. Basically, what he was saying right there in that moment, his heart was saying, God, I want to be able to do things in order to get to you, God. I want to be able to follow some cer certain rules, and those certain rules will help me get to you. I will justify myself. I will be justified to stand in God's presence if I do these things. And so he knew that the law said to love God and then to love your neighbor as yourself. And so he says, God, who's my neighbor then? Who is my neighbor? Give me a list of the people that are my neighbor so I can go and justify myself in the way in which I love my neighbor. But what we're going to see is that Jesus looks at this list and the, or this question where this man wanted a list. And instead of giving this man a list, he says, I'm going to give you a story. And the list would show us how to get to heaven, essentially, which is only, we know, possible through Jesus. But a story will show us the very heart of God. And so this man didn't want the heart of God. He just wanted a list. And so today, as we go through this story and see how Jesus answers this question, let us begin to go, where do I see God's heart in this? More than a list, because you cannot justify yourself. The, the, the man's question is silly, as we'll see as we get to the end. So let's go into verse 30. So this is how Jesus answers it. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, 
And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So let's stop. That's where the story that Jesus tells ends. So, so the man says, God, give me a list to tell me who is my neighbor. And Jesus says, I'm going to give you a story instead. So he tells this story uh, about this guy who goes on this road. And that road was a known dangerous road at the time. People were known to get jumped there and robbed there at that time, right? Is jump the right term? I think it is. And I saw you. Are we allowed to say that? Um, so this guy gets jumped. He gets jumped on the road. He's on the ground, half dead, lying there, bleeding out, whatever. I don't know. But he's half dead. And then a priest comes by. A priest comes by. These guys were the guys that would do the sacrifices, essentially help the people, facilitate the sacrifices for the people. In fact, the high priest once a year would do a sacrifice on the Day of Atonement in order to kind of get the people back good with God. So these priests at the time were like the mediators between man and God. So this priest sees this guy half dead on the road, and he goes, I'm going to walk on the other side. All right, now, now next what comes up is a Levite, and a Levite was this tribe in Israel that was like the assistance to the priest. So when you, were, when you were born a Levite, people looked at you and go, like, that guy is more holy than I am. God chose for that guy to be born into this tribe that is the assistance of the Levite, or of the priest. And so the Levite sees the guy, and he walks to the other side of the road, on the other side of the road. He doesn't want to be near that guy, and he keeps going. But then finally we have this. Samaritan. And, and we all know, we've heard it a million times, that Samaritans were not viewed well by the Jewish people. But let's give it a little bit more of a picture. So Samaria was this little area kind of within Israel. And the Samaritans there, they kind of believed some of what the Bible said. They believed certain aspects of it. But then they would take it, and they would twist things, and then they would argue with Jewish people and say, hey, that's not the right way to do it. You need to worship God on this mountain, not this mountain. And they would say all these things. So the Jewish people, they looked at the Samaritans, and they were disgusted because they said, man, you have perverted God's word. You have changed God's word. You don't understand God at all. But this Samaritan, he comes, he sees the guy half dead, and he takes care of him. He pours oil and wine to cleanse the wounds from infection. He puts bandages around the man. He puts the man on an animal, and then he brings him to an inn. It sounds like he spends the night there taking care of this guy who's half dead, and then in the morning he has to go, so he gives two days' wages to this man. Two days' wages to this man is what two denarii was, and and says, hey, I'll be back. If you spend more than these two days' wages, I'll be back, and I'll pay you back. And this is an interesting way to answer the question, God, who's my neighbor? Let me tell you the story. Right? It's an interesting way, and that's why I think it should challenge us. But these next couple of verses, I think, should really see why it should challenge us. Verse 36. So we get, Jesus gets to the end of his story. 
And he asks a question, verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, now this is the lawyer answering back, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. It's really interesting. Jesus says, okay, you tell me the moral of the story. Who is the neighbor to the guy that was lying half dead on this dangerous road? And I think it's so interesting, this lawyer who's Jewish, he can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan who Jesus said. Jesus labeled him a Samaritan. He can't even bring himself to say that. He goes, the man who showed him mercy. If I was Jesus, I would have been like, say Samaritan, right? Like I would, I would, I would have been a bad Jesus. And, but Jesus instead, he goes, yes, you go and you live like that. And I think this is challenging because essentially Jesus ends this story. He ends this story by saying, everyone is your neighbor, right? He, he ends this story by not just going, hey, here is your paradigm. Here is a, a bunch of rules and a list for who your neighbors are. It's anyone that lives five miles away from you. Or it's anyone that uh, you work with and live five miles away from. No, instead he tells this story about these guys that ignore a half-dead man on a dangerous road. And he says, there was one guy that was a neighbor there, and it was the Samaritan. And I think we should be challenged by that. Because I think if we're honest with ourselves, if we're honest with ourselves, we want, and maybe I just need to be honest with myself, I want a list. I, I, I don't want a list just because I'm trying to reach God. I want a list just because I want to please God. I want to make God happy. I want to do things God's way, which is good. But God says, man, when you only go after a list, you miss my heart. You miss my heart. And so he tells this story that essentially says, hey, everyone is your neighbor. Everybody is your neighbor. Not just some people, not just certain people. Anyone on this earth essentially is in your neighbor, particularly if they're in your path. And so I, I noticed from this story, and I, I think we could honestly spend four weeks just diving into this story. But I, I, I took away, I think there's three excuses that the characters in this story and the, even the guy asking the story used to not love their neighbor. And then I think in this story, there's also these three postures that God shows us that we should have towards loving our neighbor. And so I'm going to talk about those three excuses, and then I'm going to talk about those three postures. So let's talk about the excuses first. <clears throat> I think the first excuse is just as simple as the lawyer saying, man, maybe certain people aren't my neighbor. Maybe they're not my neighbor. And I think that's as, as easy as it gets, because when he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor, he wasn't asking, how do I be a good neighbor, which is maybe a better question. He was saying, who's my neighbor? And so I think that in his mind, and I think in our minds, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, sometimes says, maybe this person isn't my neighbor. Maybe this, isn't the per this person isn't the person I would love as I would love myself. Now listen, we all, again, and to really understand these excuses, we got to get past what we theoretically believe. We theoretically would say all day, yes, I'm going to love my neighbor as I love myself. But in application, or in a very uh, theology word, praxis, in our praxis and action, would we love everyone as we love ourselves? And I know for myself, the answer is no. 
because I go through my head and I see different people in my life and I go, maybe that person's not really my neighbor. Maybe I don't have the capacity to love that person right now. Whereas theoretically, I would go, everybody's my neighbor when I'm not looking at them. So is that excuse you make? And as we continue to go through these excuses too, begin to say, God, illuminate to my heart if I make one of these excuses. So the next excuse that I think is clear is uh, it's too dangerous to love my neighbor. It's just too dangerous. This road was a place where people got jumped. I don't know exactly why the priest and the Levite didn't walk up to him. There might have been some religious reasons around cleanliness. But you know what? They had a system for becoming clean again. So I honestly think that they looked at this man and they said, man, that guy got jumped and he's half dead right there. They could be waiting behind that rock. And so if I go up and help him, I could get hurt. And I think so often we in the church say, you know what? I'm not going to love that person because it's too dangerous. It's too crazy. I'm not going to live in that neighborhood because it's too dangerous. I'm not going to drive through that neighborhood because it's too dangerous. I'm not going to go to that Walmart because it's too dangerous. Straight up, I've heard you guys say that. That's why I use that example. It's too dangerous. And so often we make the excuse not to love our neighbor. We say, it's, it's too dangerous. Now listen, it's okay to have wisdom, right? You don't have to be doing some really stupid stuff to love people. But I'll say this. I think that that's usually not the case for us. That's just usually not the case. Usually the case is we just have this fear in our heart, and we're letting this fear overcome the love that God calls us to. So yes, use wisdom in how you love people, right? If a guy is holding a knife and he's swinging around the neighborhood, you know, call the police, right? <laughs> you don't have to love him. Um, you are loving him by calling the police, right? But I think more often than not, though, we've just, we've desired this comfort and protection and all these things, and it's okay to have those things. But when fear is our driving motivator and not love, we are not understanding God's heart. And that's why he's telling this story. So there's a couple excuses. Maybe they're not my neighbor. Maybe it's too dangerous. And then I think the final excuse is that I use, I think, a lot is someone else will take care of it. Someone else will be this person's neighbor. I can't take care of it right now. I don't have time to take care of it right now. I don't have time to take care of this person right now. Someone else will come by, and they will take care of it. I have more important things to do. And I think the story doesn't make room for that. The story doesn't make room for someone to say, someone else will take care of it. Because I think just Jesus, in using this Samaritan, he's saying, man, this guy got it. This guy understood God's heart. I don't think that the Samaritan woke up that day thinking he was going to do it and do that. And so I think that these, these excuses should all, again, challenge us to, to go, to hear God saying to us, who's your neighbor? And then God saying, everyone's your neighbor. And it should encourage us to go, man, I, I think I need to love people differently. I don't know if I love people like I love myself. And I think we need to look at some of these postures that are in here in the story, these postures that I think God calls us to in loving our neighbor. Right, and here's some of the postures. The first posture is this, is I think God calls us to having a sacrificial heart when it comes to loving our neighbor. 
Right? We look at the story. The Samaritan goes. He sees this half-dead guy. He picks him up. He starts pouring oil in his wine to clean the infections. He uses his own bandages. He puts the guy on his animal, that would have been the one that's like, I don't know if I could do this, God. I don't want to walk all the way <laughs> into town, right? He puts the guy on his animal. He goes into town. He spends money on this guy to take care of him. He spends the night with this guy to take care of him. And then the next day, he gives two days of his wages. He gives two days of his wages to the innkeeper. And then he says, and I'll come back and pay whatever he uses. He doesn't know this guy. This guy could be the worst, he could stay at the inn for like three weeks, right? Say, oh, man, I still got this limp, right? Like, he could, he could be the worst. But this guy goes, I will take care of it. That shows that God's heart for us loving our neighbor is that it should be a sacrificial heart. It should not be a, I'll do what I can and we'll see. Now, sometimes, again, there's wisdom in that because even this guy, he had to leave this guy at the end, at, at, at the end of the story. But I think that he had shown that he had a sacrificial heart for this guy. Uh, one of my friends, I'm kind of in this little Bible study with him right now. He'd been talking about how he kind of budgets his generosity to, to be sacrificial. And he, he, I've been convicted by what he said because he says he budgets it to this point. And every month he gives his money or whatever up to this point. But he never really goes beyond this point. And he'd been reading some text about being sacrificial. And he goes, you know, I think sometimes I need to go beyond the point I've budgeted. Not to get in debt or anything like that, but to, he's, he's saying, like, to buy one less burger for himself. And I thought I was convicted by that. I was like, dang, dude. Because I often so, I so often just budget my sacrificial heart. I budget my generosity, and I will only go to that point. And sometimes that's completely okay and acceptable. But I think when it stops us from loving our neighbor, we have to ask why. And if it's a wisdom issue, that's good. But if it's just a heart issue, we need to repent and bring that to God. And so we need this posture to have a sacrificial heart when it comes to loving our neighbor. I think we at least see that in the story. The next posture is this, is I think we really should love anyone in our line of sight. And maybe to put feet to this, if you see someone with a need that you can meet, you should love that person. You should meet that need. Right? So if someone is in your line of sight and you see that person and you can meet their need and you can be a part of the solution to help them, you should. You should. I think that that's what this story says as well. That there isn't a point where like, well, I, I could meet their need, but I'm not going to. The story says, no, if you see someone in your line of sight that you can meet their need, meet their need. And this is like, this one's hard for me to have this posture because Jesus didn't have a TV, right? Jesus, Jesus didn't have YouTube. So there's a lot of people in my line of sight. And I see all kinds of people all throughout the world now that are just desperate and in need of help. And I think that sometimes we've kind of taken this idea of loving our neighbor as ourselves, and we go, we can only love certain neighbors, that, that only these certain people. And I've noticed in our society, there's this argument that's happening. And bear with me. But it's this argument of, that says, hey, here's a group over here. They need love. They need love. This group needs 
a lot of love. And then there's another part of society that jumps up and goes, well, uh, I don't know if you know this, but there's a group over here different from that group that needs more love. And then this group over here, they're just like, uh, no, they don't. <laughs> right? It's not even like a good argument. Like, no, my group does. And then I see it all over Facebook. I see it all over in real life. People just going, no, my group needs love. No, my group needs love. When the story of the Good Samaritan says, every group needs love, right? Every group needs love. And when we begin to argue who deserves more love, we are essentially going, this person has the image of God more. Or we're going over here and going, no, this person has the image of God more than that person. Now, we're good Christians. We'd never do that right? But I've, I've noticed that this thing that's happening in society, it's infiltrated the church. I think the response of the church, maybe the church sees a group that needs love, and we go, man, this group really needs love. And then maybe the world goes, no, actually, this group needs love. The response of the church to go, oh, yeah, they do too. That easy. It doesn't need to be like, no, my group does, right? It doesn't need to be so babyish as we've made it to be. We've let society infiltrate how we love, and that's bad. Because now we're not loving like God, we're loving like people. And so we need to, any group, we need to be able to go, hey, if they're in my line of sight, they need love. I can love that neighbor as I love myself. And listen, I'm not saying it's going to be easy. And I'm not saying there's not groups that are more vulnerable or have been sinned against more. There are. But I just think the posture of the Christian heart and the posture of the story should never be, well, my group needs love and yours doesn't. The story is everybody needs God's love. That's the story. Everybody needs God's love. So that's first posture, sacrificial heart. Second posture, we should love anyone in our line of sight, especially if they have a need that we can meet. And then finally, this posture is, I think we should look to love the most unlikely of candidates. We should look to love the most unlikely of candidates. Because I think in this story, I don't think the Samaritan, again, woke up that day and go, you know what, I'm probably going to help a Jewish guy and spend the night with him. Right? He's, he, I'm probably going to make sure all night that he doesn't fall into a coma. No, the Samaritans and Jewish people, it was equal animosity, I'm pretty sure. There was just less Samaritans, so I think they were maybe oppressed a little bit more. But there was equal animosity there. And so the Samaritan did not wake up going, yeah, I'll probably hang out with a Jewish guy all day today and all night. No, and so I think that we should look to love the most unlikely of candidates because I think so often we just love the candidates that love us back or we just love the candidates that we like them. And I'm speaking again for myself. So who are those people in your life, in your line of sight, that are just so annoying? God is calling you to love that person because they are an unlikely candidate. Who are the people on your street that you have nothing in common with? That is an unlikely candidate for you to love. Who are the people in our society that just disgust you? And I talk to you guys, so I know that, there, that some of you have that. Who are those people God is saying, you should love those people, those unlikely candidates. And so those are the postures I see in the story, to have a sacrificial heart, that we would love anyone in our line of sight, and that we would be willing to love even the most unlikely of candidates. And I think it's challenging hearing all this, 
I'm challenged when I read this and I kind of see these postures that I think are in the story. And I start to go, I don't know if I can do this, God. And I start to get weighed down by this stuff. Because we can go away from the story and it could challenge us and our response could be, okay, now I'm going to love better. I'm going to love my neighbor better. But if we're just using our willpower to love people, we're going to get crushed underneath the weight of that. So even if you took my three postures here and you went and you lived them as hard as you could for a long time, eventually you go, I can't do it, Anthony. Your postures are wrong. And I would say that, yes, if the postures are just by themselves, you are going to fail. We need to, in order to do this well, we need to look to Jesus, who has been the best neighbor ever. We need to rest in the fact that he's been a good neighbor to us. And when we see that, then we'll be able to have these postures. Right? So the story of the world is the world is created by God. Everything is good. Then we and Satan team up and mess this all up. And there's all this sin everywhere. And so God takes the people and he begins to tell the people who he is. And one of the things he says, he says, I'm holy. I'm holy. He says this a lot to the people. You see even angels going to God and going, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, over and over and over again. And this word holy, it means two things. The first thing is perfect in all of his attributes. So God isn't like me where, you know, or, or like some of us who when we get hungry, we're kind of grumpy. Like he doesn't have that. Right? God's perfect in his love, and he's absolutely perfect in his wrath. Right? He's perfect in his grace. He's perfect in his mercy. He's perfect in his justice as well. He's perfect in his goodness. That's, that's kind of the general idea of, of holy. But also to the people of Israel, this word holy meant that God was set apart. And it was this idea that God himself is set apart from creation. He is beyond the universe. He is beyond us. He is something unlike any of us. He is completely in another category. He is set apart. He is God. And God, being set apart, could have just said, let's redo this. And he kind of did that once. But he could have just wiped the, clay, uh, the, what? the slate clean completely. But he didn't. He said, the way that I'm going to save them, the way that I'm going to make things better is I'm going to be a neighbor to them. And so Jesus denies his godhood in a sense and comes to earth and he is fully man and fully God. And you'll read throughout the Gospels, there was purpose, intentional limitations that Jesus took on in order to save us. And he became our neighbor. Literally, right? He lived next door to people. He shared rooms with siblings. He made tables for people, maybe chairs. I don't know his specialty, right? He worked on this earth. He was a literal neighbor to people, and he did all those postures better than you and me could, right? He loved the most unlikely of candidates, right? I love just seeing the groups that hang out with Jesus, fishermen, tax collectors who stole from the people, prostitutes, lots of women who at the time, that wasn't the jam, all right? That wasn't going on. So lots of women were there. I love this story even too. He sees this guy Zacchaeus who's, who's a tax collector stealing from everybody in town. He walks up to him and goes, Zacchaeus, party at your house tonight. 
Not Zacchaeus, you're a wee little man, stop stealing from everybody. No, he goes, party at your house. He loved the most unlikely of candidates. He loved everybody in his line of sight, even though his mission was really hyper-focused to bring the gospel to Israel so that they could bring it to the nations. Even though it was hyper-focused in that way, there would be all sorts of Gentiles in his path that he would love and share the good news with. And then he, he had a sacrificial heart in that he became a baby to save us. He became a man to save us. He became our neighbor to save us and the people of Israel. And we look there, and he's in Israel, and he's being a good neighbor, but he's been a good neighbor to us too. He's been a good neighbor to us too because we are the unlikely candidates to hear from Jesus and know Jesus. I am some gringo from the mountains of Europe or something. I don't know where I'm from. I'm not from the ancient Near East. But somehow I'm in God's line of sight, just like all of you guys are. And God has shown me that the sacrifices he made went even further. He showed me that his sacrifices went all the way to the cross where he died to defeat sin and death and have me share in life with him. God has been the best neighbor. He has loved me, the unlikely candidate. I am in his sight. You are in his sight. And he has made an ultimate sacrifice for us. He uprooted the sacrificial law system that this lawyer was asking about. These priests in the story who would make sacrifices for people, Jesus became the only sacrifice, the once and for all sacrifice. Jesus is the ultimate neighbor. And if we rest in that, then we might be able to to take these postures. Because part of sharing life with Jesus is he has sent his spirit to live in us. And so when we say, man, these postures are hard. I don't know if I could have a sacrificial heart. I don't know if I could love the most unlikely of candidates. I don't know if I could do these things. We could go, actually, you know what? Jesus, his spirit lives in me. The Holy Spirit lives in me. So I, I can do these. I can't, but God can do them through me. And so we need to rest in the fact that Jesus has been a good neighbor to you and to me. If we're going to rest in our own willpower and our own strength, we're not going to love anyone. We might love some people, but eventually we'll get tired. So to, to truly be a good neighbor, we need to see that Jesus was the good neighbor. Jesus was the best neighbor to each and every one of us. And we just need to trust and rest in that. And I think God has a bunch of you in specific places to love the neighbors around you. And it's difficult. Like I said, it's difficult. We have a global view of the world that used to not be the case. Used to not hear what was going on even in the town next to you, really. But now we do. And I think because of that, God is saying, hey, I think you guys might have the resources in order to love your global neighbor as well to love the people in different states, to love the people in different cities. I I think that's true. And I I don't think it's a mistake that a person from a different nation was loving a person from a different nation in this story. that's, That's how it goes. And so I would just ask you guys to rest in the fact that God, who who grew up in Israel, Jesus, who grew up in Israel, loved you and loved me. Let's be good neighbors. Let's not be crushed under the weight of it, but let's be crushed under the weight of God's love because God has you specifically positioned to love people in your line of sight. I heard this story. This is, I think this is a lame example, but it made me cry when I was listening to it, so I'm going to tell it. 
I heard this story on the radio, and it was this, uh, this little girl who I think her parents were getting a divorce, and her grandpa just died, and she had to move in with her dad for some reason, and she began to ask her dad all these series of questions, and he was just kind of a, not a good dad, and just he would write down the answers and give them to her, and so they were kind of exploring this thing in this radio story I was listening to. And they interview the girl, and the girl says, you know what, honestly, I was just asking my dad because I just wanted someone to talk to me in the midst of all this turmoil. I just wanted someone, she says, I just wanted someone to say, it's going to be okay. And I just wonder, man, if there was a Christian in her life that was going to be a neighbor to her, she said, hey, I don't know if it's going to be okay, but Jesus can make it okay one day. How much that would impact her. And I think you each have stories like that in this room where there's someone in your life who's just saying, I just want someone to love me. I just want someone to love me. And you guys, have, you guys, if you believe in Jesus, you have the best love in the universe. You understand the best love in the universe. It's God's love, really the only true love there is. So let's be a people that are good neighbors. Amen? Let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you. And God, this is, this is a challenging and it can be a hard word. And God, if there's any things I said or took liberty with, just uh, delete it from our memories, God. But God, cause us to, to have this renewed desire to love our neighbor. Cause us to be inspired to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. God, we need you for this. Give us a glimpse of how you've been the ultimate neighbor to us. Now, that's what we need to rest in. And that's what's going to cause us to be good neighbors. God, we love you and we need you. And we just pray all of this in your name, Jesus. Thank you for being our neighbor. Amen.